0: To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Or click the link in the show notes.
1: And that's really when it got me, you know, started thinking that, you know, maybe if I start with a different crop that can overcome all of these hurdles that the leafy green companies have faced, you know, maybe there is a a viable business model, uh, a company, an interesting business model that's not just about, you know, being a cent cheaper than competitors, but, you know, something more um, exciting. (laughs)
0: Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast. Weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag-tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 3. Welcome back. First-time listeners, you are in the right place if you're looking for conversations with fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world, or might I say controlled indoor agriculture. The names keep changing, but the mission stays the same. Find stories from folks who are doing great things in this industry that I'm learning more about each and every day. So I appreciate you taking the journey with me. In case you missed last week's episode, we had a great and fun conversation with Charlie Guy. He's the CEO and co-founder of Let Us Grow. And having connected with Charlie in the early days of the podcast, it was great to finally get some time on the calendar with him. Make sure you check that out. This week is a long-anticipated interview with the CEO and co-founder at Oishi Berry, Hiroki Koga. Oishi's been making a lot of ways recently, and it's no surprise to anyone in the vertical farm industry that they're doing something really interesting, specifically with strawberries and their omakase variety. Currently, a pack of eight large omakase berries is going for fifty dollars on the Oshi website, and it's only limited to New York City. So talk about uh, supply and demand and scarcity and confidence in building a quality product. This ticks off all of those. And as you listen to this interview, you'll discover why. It's really, really interesting conversation with Hiroki. What they do at Oshi is grow the best fruit in the world by deploying groundbreaking vertical farming technology that is pushing the bounds of agriculture. Today, Oishi and I talk about the origin story, naturally, I'm always curious about that, and how they became the first in the world to grow strawberries in indoor vertical form at commercial scale. Hiroki reflects on the lessons he's learned throughout his entrepreneurial journey, with a shout out to those who have influenced and inspired him, and talks about the importance he places on living up to the quality and standards of the Oishi brand. And more specifically, as you hear the conversation, it's also a reference and a reverence for the Japanese culture and the craftsmanship that goes into growing a strawberry, which I found fascinating. And finally, Hiroki shares his excitement for future expansion of the business and what excites him most about the future of Oishi and the industry. This episode is also brought to you by Indoor AgCon. Whether you're starting up or scaling up, Indoor AgCon can help you grow your vertical farming business. Live and in person this year, the premier trade show conference for vertical farming and controlled environment agriculture heads to Hilton, Orlando from October 4th through 5th. You can explore an expo filled with new product releases and business solutions, attend idea-packed educational sessions led by top CEOs and thought leaders, and connect with peers and potential business partners at their networking events. Learn more and take advantage of early bird registration discounts at indoor.ag. And you can save an additional $100 off registration with our promo code. VFP O D 2021. And we'll have those links in the show notes as well. Don't forget to sign up for our Vertical Farming Weekly newsletter at verticalfarmingweekly.com. We'll bring you the latest and greatest in the world of vertical farming brought to you by our awesome editor, Daniel. Okay, just a little bit more housekeeping before we get into the interview. If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I know I sound like a broken record, but I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. If you've been listening For past seasons or just are new to this season, it's a great way to let me know what you think about the show and anything I could improve or anything you're looking forward to or guests you'd like to hear on this show as well. All right, enough of that. Let's get into this conversation with Hiroki. So Hiroki Koga, co-founder and CEO at Oishi. Thank you so much for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast.
1: Thank you for inviting me. I'm a big fan of this podcast, and you know, I think you guys are doing a great job. Really, you know, educating people who's in this industry, but also outside of industry. And I've been able to personally learn a lot. You know, just being able to hear opinions from leaders in the same space. So, um, thank you. I'm really grateful.
0: I appreciate that, and it's always valuable as a podcaster when you can speak to someone who's actually listened to your show because as you might imagine as a creator you know you're always wondering you're creating content putting it out into the ether and you're wondering you know is anyone listening to it i'm you know (laughs) painters artists writers you know we all want to know like we're creating something is it adding value to anyone or should i keep doing this so sure is for you in early days is there anything that you would call a hobby or passion that you remember from like your youth uh, that put you in the creator category
1: in the creator category, you know what? I grew up in a normal family in Japan and you know none of my family members were engineers nor really artists. So I don't specifically recall you know any scenes where I would see myself as a very creative person. But um, you know one thing in my childhood that really affected my career path was my experience of living in Europe for a few years when I was a kid. And um, you know, other than that, I spent most of my time in Japan. But it, during those few years, I had the chance to, you know, go outside of Japan and kind of see Japan from the outside, and you know, really think about my identity as a Japanese. And you know, when you think about, you know, other students who are in that international school coming from all you know all different countries, and Japan kind of had this unique position of having you know companies like Toyota. Sony, and then like things like Pokemon or, you know, Dragon Ball in my generation. So we had a lot of unique assets. And so as, you know, as a kid, I kind of grew up thinking, you know, wow, I know my country has lots of cool things that I can be proud of. And, you know, this idea of, you know, being able to share something that Japan is good at with the rest of the world was kind of something that always, you know, stuck at the back of my head. And so I didn't know specifically what it was going to be. But, um, you know, obviously I didn't think it was going to be, you know, strawberries (laughs) at that time. But um, I think that was the biggest impact from my childhood to, you know, what I'm doing right now today.
0: It seems like from your, what I've seen on like your early schooling that you had a a passion for, you know, business, economics, you know, you've got your MBA at Berkeley. What was it about those topics that was attractive to you?
1: Well, so, you know, I guess... I was always trying to look for what my passion in life was and because I did I didn't major in engineering or you know bioscience or anything like that I kind of struggled to find what I was truly passionate about when I graduated from college and you know I went into consulting to try to find my passion. Because, you know, when you're in consulting, you get to experience a lot of different industries, a lot of different services. So I thought, you know, if I go into consulting, maybe I can find my passion. And, you know, and it actually worked out for me. And so during my six years of consulting life at Deloitte in Japan, I came across you know, agriculture related projects. And one of them was uh, vertical farming projects in, in the early 2000s. So this was when it first took off in Japan before it took off anywhere else in the world. And then that kind of became a passion. And then I had the chance to, you know, come to the U.S. to do my MBA. I, you know, I didn't plan to become an entrepreneur, but, you know, a lot of things just happened in the right time. And, you know, I I was an expert in the industry and this industry was taking off here in the U.S. at the right time. So, you know, I decided to take that opportunity and start this company.
0: Are you familiar with its origins come from Japan, but the concept of Ikigai?
1: Yes. Purpose of life. (laughs)
0: And it's something that I've been thinking about recently because I think it's. I'm gonna butcher this, and I'll probably have to look it up. But like what you, what you're good <laughs> at, what you're passionate about, and it's a convergence of all those things. And so, as you were speaking about that, it's something that I've been thinking of recently myself because I think there's things that we love, and things that we're good at, things that people will pay us for. But I think when you find the convergence of all those together, it really lights you up and it gives you a purpose in life. So I'm wondering if, if those were some of the sort of like the questions you were struggling with as as you were having those. Internal conversations with yourself.
1: Exactly. Because, you know, I, I know until I came into this industry, I didn't know what my ikigai was. And I had a good sense that maybe, you know, agriculture and vertical farming is something that I'm interested in when I first came into consulting and, you know, did one of those projects. But it really became, you know, something that I was really sure about after I spent more years here in the US during my MBA you know, looking at this industry closely as an investor and also as a consultant.
0: What was your initial thoughts, impact, experience coming to the U.S. for the first time?
1: That's a very interesting question. So a lot of cultural shocks, for sure. Um, I could speak English, but, you know, I I only spent a few years in elementary school and American school. So that was all I knew about the U.S. And this was not even in the U.S. It was in in an American school in Paris in France. So I had no no idea what, you know, the U.S. would be like. But, you no, know, one of the biggest things that I realized when I first came to, when I first arrived to the Bay Area was the difference in the quality of of produce in general um, compared to what I was used to eating in Japan. Because as a kid growing up in Japan, you know, everyone is taught that United States is the world's largest agriculture producer. Yeah. And so I, I'd assume everything would be cheaper and better, and you know even though now that I know that California has one of the freshest and the, the most high quality produce in the country, but you know I didn't even know that, and you know I still thought that the quality was surprisingly different from what I was used to eating in Japan, because in Japan we we have extremely um, high quality produce and a very uh, sophisticated distribution channel, and the country itself is you know just the size of California, so For sure. you know most. Produce can go from farm to table in, in a day. And so it's always fresh and it's always high quality. And so, you know, that was just one thing that really kind of caught me off guard. But, you know, it, it was a good insight that really got me thinking, you know, maybe there is something that I can do here in the U.S. using my experience. What
0: were some of the things you were discovering when you were at Deloitte and you started this? you know, your introduction to the vertical farming industry, seeing what work had been done up until that point. And then, you know, I would imagine having your consultant hat on, figuring out where are there gaps, where are there rooms for improvement? And, you know, what was your vision of what what's what could be possible at that time?
1: Sure, sure. So, I think the vertical farming industry itself, well, first of all, there were no such term as vertical farming back then. People called it, you know, plant factories and agriculture. It was very inconsistent. But so the whole idea of growing crops in a, using LEDs in a completely closed and controlled environment, I think, took off in Japan in the late 90s and like early 2000s. And these were mostly led by large Japanese electronics companies like Panasonic, Sharp, Toshiba, who had all of the equipments and the devices to make this happen, right? So it wasn't really driven by the market demand, but it was driven more on the technology side of things. And, you know, these companies wanted to do something cool and new, right? And, but what happened was, even though they figured out how to grow lettuces and, you know, other types of leafy greens in a vertical farm setup, they quickly came to realize that it's not a viable business model because they were just spending too much money up front on the capex. And the end product was, you know, fresh and good, but fresh and quality vegetable is always available in Japan. So, no one would pay any premium for these vertically farmed lettuces. So, every time I worked with a client, the problem was always about how do we reduce cost? Because you cannot demand much of a higher premium. And the more I looked into, you know, different projects, you know, I've seen probably 30, 40 companies, their BS and their PL. And everyone had a very similar business structure, and I just struggled so much as a consultant because I just couldn't find a way to really justify, you know, this business to be a profitable one. And so, what really happened was, you know, after ten years, the first, you know, few years, people are really fascinated about the technology because it was so futuristic and you know, sure. sci-fi, and all well, this is so cool. The robots, <laughs> exactly. But then, you know, after a lot of companies got into the space, they said, okay, this doesn't make sense. We're going to get out of the space. So what happened was it was known as an industry that was cool, but that just didn't make sense as a business. And so that's kind of when I left Japan. And then I went to the US to do my MBA in about 2015. And so You know, I had spent enough time in the vertical farm space to really know about the business in depth. But I hadn't really developed a perfect thesis on where this industry was going. And it was kind of like lingering in the back of my head as I moved to the U.S. But then in 2015, as you probably remember, I think a lot of startups started raising money here in the U.S., outside of Japan. And it was really driven by a completely different force. And it was more around uh, demand for fresh produce, but also um, demand for a more sustainable way to grow crops. And so I think, you know, people started thinking that the environment that's surrounding agriculture is changing very quickly. And all of the resources that used to be almost free are now no longer free. And, you know, the weather is very unstable. So it became a general consensus that you know something had to happen in agriculture, just like how you know people were seeing the shift from traditional cars to electric vehicles, and so a lot of investment started going into this field. And what happened was because it was such an emerging industry, and there was almost no one in the U.S. who has been doing this for many years. You know, somehow people found me on LinkedIn, and a lot of inve- VCs and uh, consultants you know, asked me if I could help them conduct due diligences on the the financial models and also the business model. And and even to the extent of, you know, technology assessment, because I'd been to so many vertical farms in Japan that were, you know, a few years ahead of what these people are trying to do here in the US. And so, you know, I kind of got to see both the, the, the Japanese market that kind of failed, and then the emerging market in the US that was driven by a completely different type of force but they were all you know using relatively similar technology and that really helped me you know think through where this whole industry was going and what it takes to succeed in this industry
0: so around 2015 to 2016 you also began to work with the folks at uh, Agfunder as as well is that right
1: yes yeah, so I, I was an mba intern at agfunder i also interned at several other VCs who are looking into uh, this space.
0: Do you feel like the time at AgFunder gave you sort of another perspective, another front seat to seeing what was happening in the industry? Because obviously, like, they're closely tied to, you know, what's happening in controlled environment agriculture, and uh, maybe you just got to see more of what was happening?
1: Yeah. So, like, to be honest, I think at that point, AgFunder was much smaller than what they are today. And I think, you know, they were also trying to figure out, you know, where their sweet spot was. So there wasn't a lot of structure to it. Um, and they, they basically just, you know, assigned me to multiple <laughs> deals around, you know, for it, what it was, you know, vertical farming operators, but it were, there were also an you know, equipment companies, LED companies, all of these random deals that were coming through their platform. So, you know, I could kind of see, you know, that there is definitely um, an increasing amount of um, interest in the space. And I could feel that firsthand because until then it was really just Japan who was doing this. So now
0: that brings us to the idea for Oshi. <laughs> so this is like now late twenty late twenty sixteen. Talk to me about what what's going through your mind at this time because you're seeing all these experiences, you know what's happened in Japan, you've seen the money coming in. So it feels like all these Lego blocks are starting to be formed. And yes. so I'm curious like how your your what your thought process is as you start to think about what would eventually become the the early days of Oshi.
1: So, you know, one interesting incident that happened during my time at Berkeley was, so I was chatting with one of the investors who wanted to invest in this space. And, you know, they were really trying to figure out who, so they were trying to invest in a vertical farm operator, right? And they were talking to many different um, leafy green companies, and they just couldn't make a decision on who was going to win in the space because the technology seemed very similar and everyone says, you know, they have something that is new, but, you know, based on my experience, almost at that point, you know, almost everything that went into the leafy green space was somewhat, you know, commoditized technology. And it wasn't, you know, n- there was no really secret sauce to growing these leafy greens. And so I couldn't recommend him, you know, a single, you know, that this company was definitely going to you know, be better than the others and so where we kind of ended up was, you know, when we think about 10 years, 20 years out, you know, who's going to succeed in the leafy green space is the company who can raise the most amount of money and who can produce a head of lettuce one cent cheaper than the competitors, because it's really hard to create differences in the flavor. And the products were already pretty good. So and it's really hard to brand Ahead of lettuce in a supermarket. So it was all about how efficiently and how quickly can you scale the business model. And it wasn't really about the technology because at the end of the day, it's going to become a commoditized technology pretty quickly.
0: It's hard to convince the consumer of the differences. I mean, they, the average consumer could probably tell you three or maybe four types of different lettuce. You know, there's romaine, iceberg, bib. I don't know, maybe yes. you know that point you start getting into like the fancier varieties. But from a taste perspective, to your point as well, there's a dem- law of diminishing returns at some point where you're just like, it's, you know, as a consumer, they're thinking, well, it's going in a salad anyway. So it's not <laughs> like I'm like tasting each leaf of lettuce as it's being eaten and I, can, I have a discerning. And you, you also have to accommodate for people's palates. Like most people's palates exactly. <laughs> are not refined, so to speak.
1: Exactly. So our conclusion was that you know, the winner of this space is going to be the person who's going to be able to raise that kind of money. So, you know, that was the interim solution. But then so I started thinking, okay, that was not a thesis that I was expecting, or, you know, where I wanted this answer to come out. And so, you know, I started thinking and took that question and, and took it a little bit one step further, and thought, okay, who is going to become the largest vertical farm player um, you know beyond leafy greens. Like let's assume that you know there's a way to grow crops beyond leafy greens. Sure. And what does the end game look like? And that's really when it got me, you know, started thinking that you know maybe if I start with a different crop that can overcome all of these hurdles that the leafy green companies have faced. You know, maybe there is a bit a viable business model, a company, an interesting business model that's not just about you know being a cent cheaper than competitors, but you know, something more um, exciting, right? And so, when I thought about what did not go well in Japan, there were three things. One was, first of all, it was extremely hard to make profit with, with these products in Japan, especially because the competing products or the conventional products were already pretty good, and so because people could not generate cash flow, positive cash flow, people had to keep on raising equity financing. And it's really tough to keep on building large facilities on equity finance. And so, you know, until you generate positive cash flow, you can't really quickly scale the business. So I thought that was one big problem. So I thought, you know, if I'm starting this business, I need to start with something that can generate positive cash flow from the first facility. So we can prove to investors and bring in more money and scale very quickly. And the second thing was, you know, everyone is selling leafy greens. So, you know, I need to start selling something beyond leafy greens. And then also, you know, let's start with something that is really challenging. But if we unlock that crop, we might be able to unlock a lot of different crops. So that was, you know, the the second point. Let's start with something that's hard. And then the last point, which was really critical for me, especially when I thought about you know the long term game like 10 years 20 years out it was really about something that could be branded because at the end of the day you know even beyond leafy greens i think the technology will become obsolete so even you know strawberries and tomatoes you know in 20 30 years i think everyone's going to be everyone in the space is going to be able to grow these crops and at that point what's really going to differentiate you know a successful company from the others is brand And this was very clear to me, especially, you know, as we were seeing, you know, how Tesla was scaling their business. And it was interesting because one of um, the articles that wrote about us kind of used that analogy and, you know, compared us to how we're expanding our business, banking on branding, just like how Tesla successfully branded their product. Because when you think about electric vehicles, you know, in 2010, I think, besides Tesla, there were a few other companies who were in this space. So like Nissan had Nissan Leaf. Um, it's kind of funny that the name was Leaf, but... Um, yeah, <laughs> I
0: actually and, tested over Nissan <laughs> <three> years ago.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, but the biggest difference between those two products was that Nissan Leaf was a sustainable product, but in terms of the quality of the product, it wasn't that much better than what was already out there. It was cheaper, it was much more affordable, but nothing really surprised people beyond the fact that it was running on electricity. But what Tesla did was they blew people's mind with a product that is sustainable, but also much superior to what was available in the market. They were faster than a Porsche, right? And even though they could only produce, I don't know how many, maybe like 1,000 or 2,000 cars every year, and most people couldn't even buy those cars, and people went crazy about it just because of the difference in the product quality. And what's helping them today is that you know, amazing brand experience. And now, you know, they're coming down to model three and, you know, there are probably 20, 30 other automotive companies that have similar products, but because Tesla built that very strong brand and an image of a leader within that industry 10 years ago, that's why we're they're able to demand a premium today. And I thought the exact same thing was gonna happen in this industry, you know, five, 10 years ago. And so, and that's why, you know, I thought we have to start with something that was truly differentiated, something that we can build a strong brand with. And my answer was strawberries. And in particular, Japanese rital strawberries.
0: Lots of things to unpack there. Um, Something you said was that you wanted to tackle this problem because it was hard. Mm -hmm. Where does that mindset, that ethos, that work ethic, like where does that come from?
1: So I think the reason why I wanted to start with something hard was because a lot of the companies that started a business in the vertical farm space started with something that is easy that they can sell tomorrow and instead of focusing on, you know, what comes beyond that. So I really thought that, you know, we, if we had the chance to raise significant amount of funding, it's probably the wisest thing to do is to spend all of that money Onto the next thing, while other people are focusing on, you know, the more immediate crops, and so that was kind of the thinking behind everything. And and also, you know, growing up as a kid in Japan, you know, strawberry is the king of crops in in Japan, and it's where all of the farmers want to end up in their career. People start oh, with really? leafy greens, you know, easier product, but crops like tomatoes and strawberries are where you know you can really put your Know, all of the learnings that you've you've learned as a farmer for you know 20 30 years and really adjust all of the environment adjust the way you grow them you're and everyone has their proprietary way to grow strawberries and you know they want to brag about the quality of their strawberries how they're superior to anything else that's you know available in the market so it's like a farmer's dream crop and that's kind of you know what inspired me and you know why I thought you know maybe if we can Start with this crop and really conquer this crop. Everything else should be much easier.
0: Is so in Japan? Is is it? Are they recognized? You know, certain brands in terms of strawberries or certain farms that that you know that these yes. taste different than the, than
1: these others. So I, this might be a little bit uh, unbelievable, but uh, in Japan, so you know, J- Japan has also uh, states. So pre- we call them prefectures, but That's every right. prefecture has their own strawberry breeding program and they're competing against each other. Right. And and so Japan owns more than 250 different varieties of strawberries. And this this is more than majority of the entire strawberry cultivars that's available on this planet, but it's really a competitive market. And, you know, if you have any Japanese friends, you know, I'd encourage you to ask them if they can name certain brands of strawberries and I guarantee they can name at least three or four that they like. So your, what are some of your favorites? I actually have so many. So the most typical one is called Tochiotome. And so these are very popular because the patent is already expired and any farmer can grow them. But one of the most popular ones are called Amao, which is grown in the southern part of Japan. And it's only grown in this you know, specific prefecture in Japan. And I think that's one of the people's favorite these days. But you know, if you go to the supermarket and what it says on the package is not strawberries, it has the brand's name on it. So I think in this country, you know, people recognize Driscoll's and, you know, maybe one or two other brands. But in Japan, you know, it's, it's, I think it's, it's much more relevant to people when, you know, they talk about brands of strawberries.
0: It almost sounds like what it's, wines come to mind, like, yes. <laughs> like the Bordeaux region or yes. Champagne. Like you're you're talking about where it was grown and, and everything that's inherent in that culture makes up like how that tastes.
1: Very very similar. So I think we have a very interesting culture when it comes to fruits. So instead of you know gifting wines, people would gift fruits. And you know if you go to department stores, there will always be a section where they have very expensive fruits that is grown in in a certain way. And they'll have stories behind, you know, how it was grown, who grew them, why it's so good. And, you know, people would gift them to their friends and families. And, you know, if you're the recipient of the gift, you would really, you know, read everything that's in that box and try to understand what it is and really appreciate where it came from.
0: The more you talk about it, the more it makes sense that this is where you would end up, because you know this is the, <laughs> the culture where you know something like a fruit and strawberries was prized. So, when did you realize that this was an opportunity in this industry, and when, and then that coupled with with you being the person that wants to bring this forward.
1: Sure. So right after I came to the U.S., you know, I clearly saw a huge opportunity in growing, you know, quality vegetables and produce or fruits here in the U.S. And, you know, strawberries was obviously, you know, one, one of the top that was on my mind. And so when I started thinking about, you know, starting Oishi, the first thing that I did was I got an importer license for strawberries. And because I didn't have money to build a whole vertical farm here, I decided to buy a bunch of high quality strawberries in Japan and basically pack my entire suitcase (laughs) and flew to New York. So at that point, it was just myself and my co-founder, Brendan. So we filled our bags with strawberries. We found a hotel that had a full size fridge in Manhattan. We filled the entire fridge with Japanese strawberries. And then we spent the next three days, you know, literally going from the bottom of Manhattan walking all the way up to, you know, around Central Park, just knocking on doors of restaurants and supermarkets and people, you know, who would be our our future customer just to get their reaction. You know, if we were to sell these strawberries throughout the year, and you had access to these strawberries, how much would you pay? And, you know, how many of these berries would you buy? And so, and the reaction was just really overwhelmingly positive. And so that was really the moment we knew that this was something that could take off if we could figure out how to grow them in a vertical farm.
0: How many strawberries are we talking about that you put on the plane?
1: <laughs> I don't know, probably a couple thousand or, wow. or a few thousand strawberries. And I mean, yeah, we've probably visited more than 40, 50 restaurants and hotels and retail buyers in a matter of three, three, four days. So yeah, we we just did cold calls on to all of these Michelin restaurants in Manhattan.
0: Yeah. I spoke to Rob Lang of Farm One and he had a similar experience when, because he went straight (laughs) towards the the high end herbs and he was, went straight to like the the Michelin restaurants and that's where he was able to make inroads early. Yes. I heard his
1: episode and I was actually impressed that he was able to bring those chefs to, uh, convince those chefs to, you know, come to his farm because when we first did our cold calls like no one was willing to meet us like we would show up at the front desk and you know ask for the chef and the receptionist will will ask us if we had an appointment and we said no (laughs) and they're like well like you have to send an email you have to call us but you know we only had three days and we didn't have that time so you know we kind of had to figure out a way to just get into the kitchen so eventually, you know what, Brandon and I kind of figured out. I'm not sure if this is something that I should share on a podcast, but you know, we you know, at one point we had to kind of lie at the reception and say, Yes, we have an appointment with the chef. And he told me to come into the kitchen. So, you know, that's how we got into you know, the kitchens. And then, you know, when the chefs come out and they see the strawberries it's just like visually, it's just nothing like they've seen before. They're, they're shining and, you know, they're already smell. you know, the fragrance is already filling up the room. So, you know, even though if we didn't have an appointment, they'll be intrigued because they're craftsmen and artisans. So, you know, they're like, okay, you know, just give me one berry. I'll give you my opinion. And then, you know, once they bite into the strawberry, their facial expression, like you can tell that they're just blown away and, you know, so some people are like, you know, I want this from tomorrow. How many can you bring? <laughs> it was as easy as that. You know, once you can get the berries into their mouths.
0: Yeah. And, and it's, it's very common. I think it, it might be a cultural difference, but, you know, just, um, you know, salespeople know that sometimes you have to try any way you, you can to get, because these people are just yes. gatekeepers gatekeepers at the front and they're trying to respect the, the chef's time. exactly. But I, think, and I, but I think you knew in your heart that what you were providing was something that they would find interesting, valuable, and something as artisans, as creators themselves, to your point, would appreciate as well as in terms of like something they haven't seen before. And, you know, I could probably ask a bunch of other questions about how you pack them to make sure they didn't get damaged <laughs> and that sort of stuff. But but that's, that's a really, really fun story. Thank you for sharing that. So now you've figured out you have something here. People are interested. Uh, now talk about formation of Oishi and then early days about what's the strategy, because you could have gone the route as anyone else did here's our product begin offering it but i think you know being instilled for so long i'm assuming that was part of the strategy as well so talk a little bit about what you're thinking there was
1: so in my second year of mba you know i decided to start this company and so especially after i've seen these reactions from the chefs you know i knew that you know as long as i could figure out a way to grow these strawberries in a vertical farm i would have a pretty solid you know revenue and pnl business model Overall, So the next thing I did was, you know, using all of my network during my time at Deloitte, I contacted a lot of expert farmers in Japan, who's been, you know, trying to do something similar in the indoor agriculture space. And then also, uh, we partnered with a lot of university leading universities in Japan, who were mostly funded by these, you know, thanks to these electronic company giants, who's been basically, you know, dumping money into these universities. So research was You know, going on, even though the industry didn't take off quite well. So, I know we did a lot of open innovation initiatives and we brought all of these bits and pieces from different universities and from different farms together to really figure out end to end how can we grow strawberries from, you know, seedling all the way to, you know, going through flowering stage, making sure that they produce enough flowers and the flowers have enough pollens. And then, you know, we can operate bees effectively to conduct pollination and the end product actually tastes good, right? So there are so many different challenges in each of these stages, which you cannot see in in a leafy green product because they have a much shorter, you know, 30 day cycle. Whereas for strawberries, they have, you know, if you go from seed all the way to production, you're looking at like a 10 month growth cycle. And there are different, you know, very distinct, different um, cycles of of the plant where you have to change environments, you have to do different things all the time. So, you know, we had help from the Japanese community a lot. And we figured out how to grow strawberries in the farm in about, I would say, uh, a year after we incorporated in 2016. So in 2017, we raised a small seed round under stealth mode. Um, These were mostly angel investors from the US and also back in Japan. And we built a very small prototype to prove that we can grow strawberries in a vertical farm. It worked and the quality was phenomenal. And so now we started using those to start talking to chefs and, you know, get commitments for their sales if we were to expand our facility.
0: And then now, as you think, because you have to wear all the hats as an entrepreneur, as you've very well experienced. So you've got to be thinking about expenses. You got to think about marketing. You got to think about sales. You've got to think about yes. all the different things that, you know, as you grow, you can hire people to do that. So putting on your marketing hat, you know, what did you want to do different with Oishi than what you had seen previously?
1: Yes. So I, I think the most important thing for us was not re- not the early revenue, but making sure that we live up to the quality and the standards of the brand that we wanted to build. So we didn't just, you know, go out and start selling the first harvest, we really perfected the environment. And we really made sure that it's a strawberry that you can just not find in this country. So that was the first thing that we really focused on quality. And then next, instead of, you know, going straight to the retailers, We wanted to establish a strong brand. So we thought, you know, Michelin restaurant chefs and, you know, these famous chefs, if they could be our spokesperson, that would help us a lot in terms of boosting the brand. And so what we did was we started selling our first product at a restaurant called Chef's Table at Brooklyn Fair in Manhattan. They are one of the five three-star restaurants. And the chef there, Cesar Ramirez, is known to be a very, very, he's a creator right? He's a little bit stubborn and difficult person (laughs) at times, but his standard is really high and he plates everything onto every single plate by himself. I was just blown away because, you know, at that type of restaurants, usually the head chef is just, you know, someone who's creating the menu and you let everyone else do, do the work. But he is just, you know, so proud of what he's doing and he just cannot let other people handle things. So he was plating everything on his own. And so we thought, you know, this is where we need to start. And, you know, people who dine at those places have a very fine palate. And, you know, a lot of people have been to Japan as well. And so they're familiar with, you know, the quality of the fruit. So we started there. And then, you know, we, even though we didn't have a lot of supply, you know, we had just enough to start selling at Chef's Table. And the word just spread really quickly. You know, we started getting lots of emails from people who dined there. Because the way he used our strawberry was he actually didn't do anything to it. So he just plated one of our berry on a beautiful plate at the end of his, I think, like 14-dish course. And at the end, it was just omakase berries. And so, yeah, I think it was very impactful. And we just started getting a lot of emails. And, you know, that's kind of how we started in terms of selling our product.
0: Given this is only an audio podcast, we're going to invite the listener to use their other senses. But for people who have not experienced, like an you know, omakasi berry, like how could you even come close to describing what that? And who are just used to, you know, the, obviously the regular strawberries we've had here in the states for years? How would you compare? How would you describe it?
1: So the way the, the chefs describe our strawberries is. First of all, they say that the aroma and the fragrance is just completely different. So if you were to have one tray of our berries and leave it in a room for, let's say, five to ten minutes, anyone who would walk into that room would realize that it's, the room is smelling like a strawberry farm, basically. Actually, you know, even more than a strawberry farm here that you can find in, the, in this country. So the aroma is just exceptional. And, you know, considering that 70% of your taste consists of the aroma, you know that is extremely important. And the other thing is is the sweetness. So we have um, 2 to 3 times more sweetness in our strawberries compared to what's available on the market. And I think the last thing is the texture is very soft and creamy. So it might be hard to imagine you know, what a creamy strawberry is like, but you know if if you've had Kobe beef and you know people would say it's very creamy or buttery compared to your traditional steaks, it's a little bit similar to that. It's very soft and it would not be able to withstand a long distance transportation, but because we can grow it in a vertical farm right next to your consumers, it's full of, you know, soft, soft flesh, and that's full of sweetness and aroma.
0: And now the, in terms of availability, is it still just uh, in New York or are you shipping to other locations now?
1: So right now we're still in, uh, just in New York. Well, so precisely speaking, uh, Manhattan and parts of Brooklyn and parts of uh, in New Jersey, but we're still, you know, limited to this area. But we are getting a lot of inquiries. And, you know, probably, you know, as we're speaking right now, we're probably getting a couple emails from people from all over the world, like, when are you going to be expanding? And that's really what we are working on right now. It really hurts me that, you know, we have been advertising these things online, but, you know, only people who live in New York have access to this. So we have plans to expand into other cities in the U.S. and also outside of the U.S. I, don't, I can't uh, share the exact timeline, but we're not talking about, you know, five years, 10 years. Out. We're talking about a much closer future.
0: So to the extent that you can share, what is the plan, you know, for growth? And do you see these as satellites operating in other major cities? Or how have you thought about this expansion?
1: Yeah, so in terms of expansion, I think we'll take a, a relatively similar approach to most of the other larger leafy green vertical farms, which is to build large commercial scale uh, farms next to each major city around the world. And obviously, we will start with strawberries. We've started with our omakase berries, which is truly an exceptional quality strawberry. But we are, we've also succeeded in growing our everyday, you um, know, more affordable strawberries as well. They are still, you know, two to three times sweeter than what's available. So um, they're far superior to what's On the market today, those will be available relatively soon. So we will have multiple varieties within strawberries. And if you think about, you know, how Tesla went from Roadster to Model S and Model Three, right now we're still in that Roadster stage. But we have, you know, figured out how to do Model S, and we are actually working on the Model Three right now. So we're looking at a much shorter timeline than you know how Tesla went from Roadster to their Model Three. And you know, even beyond strawberries, we're working on uh, multiple crops. We're definitely going to try to focus on crops that people can really feel and understand the difference in the quality and the flavor. So we're looking at things like tomatoes, melons, and and those kind of fruits.
0: I would imagine if you take the same care and dedication to flavor and quality that you did with strawberries and you're applying it now to things like tomatoes, because again, that's another crop that when people think of it, it's just you know um, they, throw, they tend to most people here tend to throw in a refrigerator which is the worst thing you can do to a tomato and then they'd lose the flavor and you know the, you get some of that heirlooms but it, it'd be fascinating to see if you apply that sort of craftsmanship <laughs> to exactly
1: yeah what, what's possible? Exactly so you know we've already seen results from our R; d facility that you know some of the varieties of tomatoes that we're growing contain three times as much sweetness compared to strawberries. Wow. So they're sweeter than, you know, the strawberries that you can find in this country.
0: So, yeah. I mean, so you're officially out of stealth now because the whole world knows about (laughs) you guys now. So if you had to look back from when you launched to where you are now, and you're now, you know, starting to make the rounds, talking to people about the story, what's been some lessons and some takeaways for you over the past couple of years?
1: Lessons and takeaways. Yeah. So I think the biggest lesson that we learned, or, you know, I personally learned as a management of this company is that when we first started, this industry was so small and a lot of people were casting doubts about, you know, whether this is even a feasible business. And, you know, I had spent enough time and, you know, I had enough confidence to sit, to believe in myself that this was really going to happen. But, you know, but also a part of me was also a little bit conservative And because I had seen a lot of companies, a lot of smart people fail in this industry. And so when I was planning my strategy, let's say my long term strategy, three, four years ago, I did not have enough mind space to think about what do I have to be uh, doing um, now that will save me in five, six years later because I was, you know, really focusing on, you know, perfecting the quality and doing what I can do today, right, versus, you know, allocating that the money and the resources to something in the future. But, you know, running this company for four or five years now, what I'd really learned is especially for crops like strawberries that take a long time to conduct R&D, and then also to breed new varieties, you really need to be, you know, investing that extra, you know, resource into things that will really change the game in five, six years out. And so, you know, if I had started our breeding program four years ago, we would have been in a much better place than, you know, where we are today. We we are already breeding new cultivars, but it takes three, four years, right? So I wish I started that a little bit earlier so we could share more, you know, amazing strawberries with the rest of the world. So I think, you know, invest the way I think about R&D, has changed a lot in the past 2 years and now i have much more confidence that in you know what we're building and you know the whole i think investment ecosystem is confident, is becoming more confident in this industry and there's more money coming into this industry so i feel like i can you know push the excel button more than 3 4 years ago who do
0: you look to for inspiration as a leader given this new role that you've stepped in as you know at Oshi, and who inspires you, and who do you look to for inspiration?
1: yeah, that's a very good question because i you know i've this was a question that I've always asked myself the past you know four years because it's my first company, and every day I'm dealing with an organization that i of a size of an organization that I've never run before, right but you know the interesting thing is after asking this question to myself and trying to you know mimic you know the way other great leaders have kind of steered their company it really didn't help me because at the end of the day i realized that i'm a different person and it just really uh, i think puts unnecessary pressure on me when i think that you know i have to act in a certain way like do i have to be like elon musk do i have to be like jeff bezos I think, and I, I come to realize that that's not a very healthy way. And instead, and, and you know, because when you're in that mindset, you really try to kind of force yourself to be someone else. Yeah. And it, while it's important to improve your skill set as a management, I realize it's, it's very unhealthy. And what I found to be much more effective is to admit what I'm capable of doing, what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, and be very transparent about it with the team. And, you know, I always tell my colleagues that, you know, I'm, you know, all the people that we've hired recently, all the management are much more talented than me in everything that they do. And the only thing that I have confidence in is my passion for this industry and my experience in this industry and, you know, my knowledge and how I think this industry is going to trend like that. That's my strength. Right. So, you know, these days I try to be a little more relaxed and just try to be myself, be a little more authentic. And instead of trying to be, you know, this ideal leader that I think people, you know, see as an ideal leader, but that's not necessarily the case. That makes a lot of sense. What's a a
0: tough question you've had to ask yourself recently?
1: Recently? Well, so, you know, if you call one year ago, recent, I think One of the biggest decisions we had to make as a management during COVID, I think very similar to other companies, was do we go into, you know, a conservative, you know, shelter mode to secure runway and, you know, size down the organization? Or do we, you know, try to keep on hitting all the milestones? And it was really a difficult decision because when COVID hit, we had no idea where this was going to go. And... (laughs) So we discussed a lot almost all of our investors told us to size down the company and to secure more runway because everyone was really scared that you know we might just run out of cash right but the more we really started thinking about what does covid mean to our business and you know even though it was a very scary environment we started to learn that you know there's actually more opportunities because, you know, people are spending more, more time and money at home and they, they, you know, their awareness towards food and was, you know, increasingly, um, you know, getting, getting educated more and more. And there was, we're, we were experiencing much higher demand from, you know, their, uh, consumers who would be dining at Michelin restaurants. But, you know, now that they can't dine at Michelin restaurants, they were looking for other ways to spend their money. So, you know, instead of sizing the company down, we've decided to basically keep all of our our employees and we doubled down on all of the the milestones that we promised to our investors prior to COVID. And, you know, we hit all of those milestones and and that's how, you know, we were able to raise the next uh, round of funding, which we announced, uh, you know, this March. But um, that was, you know, maybe we're just lucky. You know, if I were an experienced serial entrepreneur, Maybe the best decision I had to make at that point, given you know the amount of information I had, was to size down the company. I don't know, but you know it turned out to be that it, it was a good decision that we made, and because of that, we made tremendous progress. And you know, as a matter of fact, our the number of our employees tripled in the past twelve months. Wow! And then revenue, you know, more than tripled. So,
0: I think uh, you know hindsight is twenty twenty, but you can look back and if you were able to navigate the company through it's arguably one of the most challenging environments in a century <laughs> for most business owners. And the fact that you're able to weather that and come out ahead, I think gives you resilience and shows you what's possible and what you're capable of as a leadership team. So I think it, it sort of gives you that boost of confidence that it almost like if you can make it, if you can make it through COVID, <laughs> you know, then <that> anything else <laughs> is probably not going to be as as intense. So congratulations. I'd like to, to hope you. so. Thank you. Well, Hiroki, I really appreciate you sharing your story. It's really entertaining, and I was really looking forward to this conversation, and I'm excited to be sharing it with my audience. And so I appreciate you taking the time, and uh, it's really fascinating to hear what you've built and exciting to see what you have planned for the future in terms of making Oishi a, a standout company in this space. And I think it's going to be a model that uh, a lot of people are going to be looking at closely and trying to emulate, I don't know how much success they'll have, because it seems like you're definitely a few steps ahead. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'd like to hope so. <laughs> yeah.
0: And so if people want to learn more, they can go to oishi.com That's O-I-S-H-I-I.com. And the company and the marketing team's active on socials as well.
1: Yes, I think we make a lot of announcements on our Instagram. So every time we expand our delivery zone or, you know, we expand into a different region, I think that's where we're going to announce everything first. So, now, if you're interested in, you know, when your city is going to be within our delivery zone, I think Instagram might be the best place to, to follow.
0: Okay, we'll make sure we have all those links in the show notes as well. So thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Harry. That was so much fun. Such a great conversation with Hiroki. Thanks again, Horky, for coming on the show, sharing your story. I know that your time is in demand now, now that you're out of stealth mode. And a lot of people are starting to experience what Oishi is all about. So grateful for that. Full show notes available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Thanks to our season three title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking for a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out the last E. Indoor AgCon is coming up in October. Learn more and take advantage of early bird registration discounts at indoor.ag and save an additional $100 off with our promo code VFPOD2021. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for a free podcast brainstorm at fullcast.co forward slash VFP15. If you think your company would benefit from a podcast or have questions about starting the process, that's a great opportunity to have a chat with me and my team. As a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. And we'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Join us next episode for my conversation with David Cohen, CEO of Fluence. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.